Hello, dear listeners. This is Christopher Brick, and thanks for joining us for the Q&A round with Professor Kenneth Jenkin of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Kenneth's talk on the anti-capitalist journeys of Langston Hughes and Cedric Belfry's directly precedes this one in the episode queue. So if you haven't heard it yet, I'd encourage you to go give it a listen. And as always, Interval co-host Carrie Anya Koda will be here in the virtual studio as well to elevate the discussion for us all. Please enjoy. Kenneth Jenkin, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. This will be fun. Kenneth Jenkin is a professor of, of African-American and diaspora studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He is joined today by my wonderful co-host and colleague, Professor Carrie Ann Yakota of the University of Colorado, Denver. Hi, glad to be here again and really looking forward to our conversation. You know, um, Kenneth... Here. We're, we're excited to have you here. We've listened to your lecture, and we thought to start things off, we'd ask you to give us a brief intellectual autobiography, maybe tell the listeners what brought you to the subject that we'll be speaking on today. Hmm. Well, what brought me uh, to the subject today is... Uh, is a little bit different than uh, there, there's a backstory uh, to it. Um, there always is. <laughs> so, so, so I'll give you two. I'll give you two versions, and then you can edit out which one you don't want. I was. Um, I, I'm a product of public schools uh, all the way through from kindergarten to uh, uh, to PhD. I went to uh, school in. Uh, Los Angeles. And uh, I was, and I grew up uh, in um, the 1960s and, and 1970s. And in uh, college, uh, uh, the most, um, mm, I guess, the most exciting, certainly the most prominent uh, uh, social movements uh, were uh, the uh, anti Vietnam War movement. And uh, uh, the civil rights movement, a black liberation uh, movement, and so I had a, a you know a, a fairly early interest in uh, studying uh, that. Um, after uh, uh, after college, uh, I uh, bounced around uh, the country for for a bit. Uh, well, you know, eight years or so, uh, odd jobs here and there. And uh, I decided that uh, I would go to graduate school uh, and uh, get a PhD because it looked like uh, uh, being a college professor was, you know, was a pretty good gig. And uh, I enjoyed uh, a lot of the things that I saw uh, my professors enjoying. And when I got to graduate school... Um, I had taken uh, some courses in uh, African American history, and I thought that I could make a, a contribution uh, in that field. And so that was how I got into uh, the profession of African American history. Um, how I got to uh, this point in uh, my work was uh, uh, in... 1994, uh, I uh, 
I was working, I was at the beginning stages of uh, a biography of Walter White, uh, who was head of the NAACP uh, in the uh, 20s, 30s, 40s, and the first part of the 1950s. And I got a phone call from uh, uh, Mary Belfridge, who was uh, uh, Cedric Belfridge's uh, wife. And uh, well, she was his widow. Uh, at, at, at that, by that time. And uh, she was living in uh, Cuernavaca, uh, you know, in Mexico. And she said, um, you know, would you like to write uh, my, uh, my uh, dead husband's biography? Uh, why don't you come down to uh, Cuernavaca and, uh, and uh, talk with me about it? And so I got on a plane and uh, went down and uh, he seemed, Cedric Belfridge seemed like a really interesting fellow. Uh, I didn't quite know what to do with him uh, at the time, but I was busy working on this other project and I didn't want to give it up. Uh, so I said, thank you, but uh, no, thank you. I'm, I'm working on this other project. And she said, okay. And then I just tucked it away. And I, after Walter White, uh, was done. I, I picked up a project that was uh, North Carolina based, a history of uh, the Wilmington 10, because I wanted to stay close to home and I wanted to teach about and, and, and learn about North Carolina, uh, my, my new uh, adopted state. Uh, and then when I finished that, I, I kept going back to, uh, uh, to the idea of doing something on Cedric Belfridge. And uh, I, in the meantime, I had read more about him and read some of his uh, work, including his uh, his uh, uh, his uh, books about his travels. And I thought, this is uh, this is what I want to do. And that's how I got to, and that's how I got to Cedric uh, to Cedric Belfridge. And so I'm bringing with me to this project. Um, uh, a, a, a good understanding, a career's worth understanding of uh, 20th century uh, African American history and the uh, connections uh, between African American history and U.S. history and African American history and world history, especially uh, uh, anti imperialist and anti colonial struggles. And that is a, uh, uh, that is a touching point with uh with uh belfridge well i think um we're very glad that you did take um you followed up on that project and i think you already answered my next question but maybe we'll just explore it a bit more um for those listeners who have heard some of our other um episodes this season chris and i really wanted to focus on global perspectives that um, U.S. historians are taking. And um, in your case, it's quite evident how a global um, view um, influences the way you're setting up the lecture that we all listen to. But maybe you can talk a bit more about how this transnational, global, international, however you would like to define it, how this perspective has changed the story that you're telling. Well, uh, for Cedric Belfridge, um, the anti-colonial outlook that he uh, adopted 
you know, largely as a result of his, or initially as a result of his, uh, of his uh, world travels, uh, led him, uh, led him back to Hollywood, um, where he uh, joined forces with uh, the budding uh, uh, United Front, uh, Popular Front, uh, anti-Nazi. Uh, movement, which in Hollywood was was rather uh, was rather strong, uh, for Langston Hughes, um, in this, uh, you know he, you know for all of his adult life, you know, of, and, and from you know from a young adult on, he of course was. Uh, was uh, was a civil rights fighter, and you know it's in his family lineage uh, as well. One of his uncles was uh, uh, was with John Brown uh, in Harper's Ferry, and uh, you know another uh, an- another relative was uh, uh, the Reconstruction governor of uh, Louisiana, um, but he too, was curious about the wider world and what was motivating people and, you know, what distinguished one person from another or one ethnic group or one nationality from another, but also what bound people uh, uh, together. And his trip in the 1930s around the world uh, brought him uh, similarly uh, to a Belfridge to adopt a worldview. Uh, you know, a, a view that the way to achieve equality was uh, you, you had to do it internationally and uh, you had to be aware of and you had to be aware of other fights and support other people's fights. And that's the way you also get support for you. You had brought in this question about the movies and brought in this. It's a it's a thread. It was very important to Belfrage. It seems to have been the medium through which he first came to encounter at least ideas about America. Right when he gets to Hollywood itself, does that reconstruct or challenge any of those preconceptions? And to what extent did Hollywood kind of was the brand ambassador for the United States writ large in that time? Well. Uh... Hollywood uh, was achieving uh, world domination, I guess, in the film industry. And uh, it it had eclipsed uh, the British film industry and it had eclipsed uh, the German film industry. Um, And it was doing an outstanding job, uh, uh, as as Belfridge talked about it, uh, promoting escapology. It was, you know, doing a, a terrific job uh, uh, focusing people's attention on uh, on unreal things, uh, unreal relationships, uh, unreal, unreal, unreal erotica um, uh, and trivia um, and diverting people's attention from uh, uh, from hunger and poverty and uh and exploitation and you know and the like what he found when he got to hollywood was that um the image that he had been sold uh in the movies uh but also in real life in hollywood was a was a fantasy 
and I guess was a lie that uh, Hollywood, he discovered, um, was uh, was built on real estate promotion. Um, and uh, 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 and that, you know, the, the idea that people could be discovered and then uh, become stars, you know, that certainly happened in some cases. But in most cases, uh, people had um, who, who went to Hollywood uh, to make it um, found uh, that the jobs were low paying, that they were uh, infrequently paying. They were like gig work. Um, and uh, there was a lot of poverty and, uh, y you know, people living on the street um, because they couldn't afford the rent. And that opened his eyes, you know, that this was a uh, this was an industry that manufactured its own its own reality. And the I the whole point was to was to sell a uh, was to sell a dream. Uh, that would never that would never come true for most people. So it did open, you know. It, it, uh, he certainly learned what was behind the uh, the image. And mainly, when I think of Langston Hughes and uh, Hollywood, my thinking turns on his statement that uh, Hollywood um, that that Hollywood excluded African Americans, and the reason he started on his uh, world trip that I describe in uh, you know uh, that he describes in I Wonder as I Wander, was he was going to make a movie uh, in the Soviet Union, and uh, there was a ragtag group of people. Some of them were. Uh, were actors who were aspiring to a film career but couldn't find it in the United States. Others were uh, uh, skilled workers, maybe who could find jobs on set, you know, on set construction and things like that. And there were, um, uh, you know, there were uh, people like Hughes who were uh, writers. Uh, and he went um, to to make a movie. And the movie didn't get made, uh, and um, for a variety of reasons. Um, no, and then he set out on his trip through uh, European, you know, Soviet Europe, and then into Soviet Asia. And uh, then he encounters people making movies in, uh, in I guess it was Kazakhstan, uh, and he says, "Well." You know, I've never ever seen black people behind the camera. I've never ever seen uh, uh, black directors, and here is, um, and here are people, are uh, you know, are uh, uh, Kazakhs uh, doing exactly that. So I associate Hughes, you know, um, largely with uh, with the exclusion in in Hollywood, uh, and that's just been. You know, I I hadn't really thought much about uh, his whatever work he did in Hollywood. I mainly thought about it about that he had to get away from there. Um, mm. But that's you know, but that is I, I'll concede that that really has a lot to do, perhaps with uh, with my entry point into Hughes and Hollywood. You know that it wasn't it wasn't uh, uh, I hadn't considered his I hadn't really considered much his his uh his work in hollywood uh so no i think that if i can jump in too i i thought that 
this is an interesting uh, connection. And I was going to invite you to talk to us a bit more about your decision to talk about these two very interesting lives uh, together, right? Um, and I think Chris's question about the movie industry is a, is a good um, entree into that um, in some ways. Um, but I'm thinking about how for foreign, uh, so non American, non-U.S. audiences, the imported view of what life in America is, it's this escapism, it's fantasy, but for people of color living under um, structural uh, racism, under Jim Crow, it's, it's hard. You could still go to the movies to escape, but you live the reality, right? So that's one point of contrast, for instance, mm -hmm. even though the film industry brings these two figures together, this is something that puts them apart. And I think that's the interesting interplay, right? What, how these two figures who are dealing with similar issues of injustice and have similar political views, how their lived experience and the range of options because of their race um, varies. So I, if, I'd love to hear more about what you think about it. So you you cut out on the last part. Yeah, there. no. So I was just going to invite you, sorry, to to talk about any of those issues. I, I think that um, it, it Belfridge's uh, own awareness, it, and I liked that part of the lecture where you're saying he realizes when he travels abroad what just being born in white skin does for mm. his options and his um, privilege. Even if he doesn't want it, he can't mm -hmm. not enjoy that privilege because he is who he is. Mm -hmm. He's living in his own skin. So I was going to invite you to talk to us and the listeners about some of these issues of differentials in life experience due to the uh, skin that you're born in, literally. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's, that's an interesting question. And, um, you know, for Belfridge, uh, I think, you know, by, by the time he was in his twenties, uh, and was, uh, was aware of, uh, the, the realities that British colonialism imposed on its, uh, colonial subjects, but also on, uh, on, uh, the, the vast majority of, of workers in, uh, uh, in England, uh, the poverty that say, you know, he spoke about Welsh miners or he spoke about, uh, textile workers, uh, in, uh, in, uh, uh, in England, um, uh, not having enough to eat or suffering from malnutrition or uh, not being able to uh, uh, read at a very uh, at a very advanced uh, level. Uh, you know, I think once he became aware of those things, um, he would tried to figure out a way to, uh, well, both to poke fun at at those uh at those uh, characteristics, uh, 
but also figured out a way, you know, work to find ways to critique it and um, and bring people, uh, bring his readers uh, new perspectives on uh, on uh on, on British colonialism or on uh, uh, exploitation of workers in uh, in the metropolitan areas. So, for example, his um, his early articles in uh, in the different fan magazines uh, that were published in Hollywood, um, you know, some of it would be fairly standard fare. You know, so and so is having an affair with so and so, and you know things like that. Um, but then uh, others would, uh, other articles would be articles that um, would be much different than what you had seen in other it, 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 from other authors. Things that explored the life of a stuntman, uh, for example, or explored the life of an extra. Or somebody who was uh, hired for you know two dollars a day in um, uh, f uh, for some type of studio work, and really kind of you know as a way to 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 broaden the film the film uh, uh, the film fans uh, perspective. Um, so I I don't you know I think he was you know he he was clearly conscious of uh, the privilege he. Uh, had or the privileges he had because of uh, because of his class and because of and also because in the United States I think having that British accent uh, you know there was some cachet there um, uh, for that so I think he was aware of it but I don't think he uh, but I think he worked to um, uh, uh, to undermine it. Um, and uh, and and to be he, he worked uh, for something that was more uh, democratic and uh, more egalitarian. They're they're both people who chose to be reflective about how interesting their lives were and to to engage in this act of, you know, telling their own story through an autobiographical medium. Um, and they're both travelogues too the, the the two stories that they tell kind of tell this progression into other spaces new cultures new languages new food ways uh, but also new 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 formats of of race relations uh, but also um, their journeys of politics mm -hmm. and um, it seems like both of these figures ended up the, the the journey that they took was it was a journey into the left. Yes, I think they do end up in similar places uh, for a period of time. You know, both of them uh, when they engaged on their travel. So it was right around the same time the uh, m you know the mid nineteen thirties, um, and uh, in both the United States, uh, you know, Hughes was living in. Uh, in uh, the Bay Area, but he also had lived in uh, in uh, New York, you know, and uh, uh, and Hughes was in London, uh, and early before that had been in Hollywood. Um, they were, I, they were very uh, influenced by the development of uh, of the Popular Front, your United Front Against Fascism, and. Uh, in the United States, um, 
that was uh, particularly strong uh, uh, in the West Coast. Uh, and by the time they returned uh, to the United States, um, that movement was um, uh, was strong and was influential. And they both uh, continued uh, working in that through uh, uh, through the Second World War. Um, uh, Hughes, uh, 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 Belfridge, uh, continued on that, uh, after the war, um, and, uh, paid a price for it, uh, in, uh, uh, being deported, uh, because he was not, he was a British subject and, uh, had not finished his, uh, application for American citizenship, um, uh, the Cold War in the United States uh, came down very hard on him. And in 1953, he was uh, arrested uh, for deportation and spent uh, a number of months in prison and on Ellis Island, uh, both, uh, and then was eventually deported in 1955. Hughes um, continued uh, on it, uh, through uh, the Second World War. And when the Cold War and the Red Scare uh, began anew in, uh, in the late 1940s, uh, his, um, uh, his uh, uh, political activity uh, and then also his, uh, shall we say, uh, political slash artistic activity uh, uh, placed him in uh, in the sight of uh, McCarthy and uh, Walter Winchell, the uh, really reactionary syndicated columnist in uh, uh, in the United States, uh, and uh, he paid a price of uh, he paid a price in two ways. I think uh, one was he lost a lot of his livelihood. Uh, he, he made a lot of his income in. Uh, speaking fees, speaking at black colleges, uh, especially. And, um, uh, you know, those black colleges, especially ones that were uh, state-supported or state-affiliated, uh, received a lot of pressure from uh, government and philanthropic uh, uh, circles not to uh, invite him to speak. So he paid for it like that. That's one way. Um uh, but then, and he made a decision, um, he made a decision early on in his, you know, at the beginning of his book, I Wonder as I Wonder, you know, as he was retelling it, he said he wanted to make his living as a writer. He was tired of taking odd jobs and, uh, you know, he was tired of like being, you know, the, the actor who's a waiter, you know, he wanted to be, he wanted to be the writer who was a writer. And uh, by the late 1940s, uh, he bought a house in Harlem, and um, he needed to pay the mortgage, and uh, so he took in uh, he took in boarders as well. But he also needed to make a living as a you know and pay for it by being a writer, and he uh, his his political uh, forthrightness uh, cost him the possibility of earning a living, and so he distance himself from the people that he was uh that he had been uh working with for the previous 
you know, decade and a half or two decades. And um, when he was called before uh, uh, the, um, I believe it was the Senate Internal Security Committee, the McCarthy Committee, uh, and uh, Roy Cohn was questioning him, uh, he had to disavow every, you know, a lot of what he had stood for, uh, you know, for the previous period. Uh, but he did it in an interesting way. He did it without implicating uh, other people and without naming other people. So he didn't name names. But he did have to remove himself from that 15-year period of his life or 20-year period of his life. And I'm sure that was painful to him. Uh, and so he paid for it. He paid for it as well. Yeah, no, it's very striking that um, you look at the two trajectories. I mean, and this question follows up on my previous one. You look at two trajectories of these individuals. And on the one hand, you have the privileged British subject being deported. And, um, and, but you say that his career and his voice is not stifled, right? That he could continue. And then you have I, I was interested in talking about how the how the status of citizenship um, plays a part in the African American community's fight for equality and social justice, right? So for other communities of color, um, the deprivation of citizenship status and the right to vote in the United States often hinders their um, efforts to fight for equal rights and civil rights, right? So, but the African American community, um, it, they have after the civil war, they have those rights. So it's interesting, these different privileges and, and challenges that each of these individuals have mm -hmm. in pursuing their lives, their, their politics and, um, trying to, uh, survive. And I, so I was wondering well, if you can. Yeah. You know, Arnold Rampersad, uh, who, mm -hmm. who wrote that wonderful, uh, two volume, uh, biography mm -hmm. of Hughes said that, uh, Hughes, uh, survived by, uh, you know, he made a choice it, that for him, he could have stayed with, uh, he could have stayed consistent. He could have stayed with the left and and stayed with uh, the Progressive Party and the uh, the uh, Arts and Sciences Professionals Committee. I can't remember the exact name. Uh, he could have stayed with them. Uh, he could have stayed with W. E. B. Du Bois, who was his one of his early childhood heroes. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but he felt that. If he did that, he would suffer. Uh, it was quite likely that he would suffer uh, uh, isolation from or being shunned by uh, shunned by um, black elites. Um, and for Hughes not to have the outlets uh, for you know for his writing in say uh, the Amsterdam News or. Uh, or uh, uh, the uh, Baltimore Afro-American or, you know, uh, any number of other publications. That was, uh, that was worse than death for him. 
Uh, and he, you know, for somebody who had uh, built his career mining African-American culture and history, uh, to be cut off from that was, uh, he, he made a choice he would rather be cut off from the left. He had to be cut off from something, and he made that choice. I was wondering, you know, if you could just very briefly, because we don't want to keep you too long, but maybe if you could answer uh, or or take up where you left off, just with a few sentences to leave the audience or the listeners about how you think um, this story, the story that you told um, us today, uh what insights does it give us about this developing anti-imperial and anti-fascist front as it's playing out in the United States? Um, that's those your final line. And so I thought I'd just ask you to elaborate a bit and then we'll, we'll, yeah. Okay. We'll, let you go. well, this is, I mean, it, that's how the lecture ends, but it's really very much of a beginning of, uh, of an anti-fascist front uh, in the United States and in, uh, in and around the world. Uh, what I learned from my research on this that did not all come out in the uh, in the lecture, uh, having been limited to about thirty minutes of a lecture. Uh, what what didn't come out was uh, was the way these movements were built. You know that they were not built on uh, on uh, slogans. They were not built on uh, on ideas divorced from uh, from reality and from social practice. That uh, uh, you know that Langston Hughes, for example, um, uh, you know on his. Uh, on his journey through uh, uh, Soviet uh, Asia, sees how a new world is coming into being. Uh, he, uh, he 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 describes for the reader the rockiness and the tenuousness of uh, of a new world and of a world of uh, national equality. I think that's how he would have uh, have described it, and you know when he moves on to Spain, which uh, which I did not talk about in the in the lecture, he you know he talks about how a world in Spain is uh, being uh, being created, uh, developing workers and peasants' power, things like that. So uh, you you have that, uh, and I think with. Um, uh, with Belfridge, uh, you see the beginnings of, um, uh, of him trying to put into practice some of the insights that he learned on his trip, uh, in Hollywood. Uh, you know, he was very close with, uh, well, very close with all of the Hollywood 10, the screenwriters who were blacklisted, but then a whole host of other people. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, he worked, uh, he worked hard, uh, you know, for immigrant rights in uh, in the United States, uh, and so I, I see you you see the beginnings of uh, of a movement that would uh, that would probably reach its apex in the uh, in in the immediate aftermath of World War 
in the you know in, in the immediate after, aftermath of World War II, uh, and of course then it continues in London with him with the anti-colonial activity uh, in uh, in London. Great, thank you so much, Kenneth. Um, I think on behalf of Chris and I, we I just want to say we enjoyed your talk, and it was very nice to be able to follow up on some of the points that you made in your lecture today. Um, I wanted uh, to finally ask a, a fun question. So as you know, this is a podcast um, by the OAH, and we're all historians here. And for those mm -hmm. listeners who are not historians, we're trying to give some insights into our lives as uh, professional researchers. Mm -hmm. And all of us spend a lot of our happiest moments on the road in archives. And we wanted to ask you, um, what your most memorable meal on the road while doing a research trip was. <sighs> okay. There's two of them. I'll okay. give you one. Are they going to be good memories I, or bad? They could be either great meals, bad meals, whatever. You... Oh, no. They're, they're great meals. Oh, they're great okay. Meals. Two good uh, meals. Good. But um, so one was great. I, I have no recollection of what I ate, but I went, I was a graduate student. And uh, I came down to uh, Chapel Hill to do some research in the uh, – we have a great uh, Southern historical collection here. So if you do Southern history, you really have to come here. Uh, it, it has to be one of your stops. And um, I, I came down to do research there, but I also came down to interview uh, John Hope Franklin, Oh, uh, great. Wow. The, uh, the Dean of historians yeah. uh, of African-American historians. And, um, he was extraordinarily generous and he take, he took me to lunch at, uh, I, I, I can't even remember where it was some, one of the clubs that he belonged to. And I don't remember what I ate, but he asked me what I was going to be doing here. And I said, well, I'm going to be looking, I'm going to be researching X question. But I don't really think I need to go through all of that if, if I don't have all the time because I've read about it in – and I named you know a couple of other books. And he spent the entire uh, 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 lunch lecturing me about that those other books – are not primary sources. And I, and as you know, historians, we know we have to go to the primary sources. And so I learned a lot from that. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I could imagine if I had the privilege of going to lunch with him, I wouldn't remember what I ate either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's and then, yeah. And then, you know, my recent research in New York has been, uh, uh, revolves around, uh, Eating, uh, eating at uh, Spicy Village, a great uh, noodle shop in uh, in Chinatown, and uh, a great pizza shop in uh, in uh, in in Lower Manhattan. All right. Well, well, Professor Kenneth Jenkins. Again, I want to thank you for sharing some of your research with us and with the Intervals audience. And of course, thank you to Professor Carrie Yokota for being here with me Thanks, and Chris. tolerating all my audio glitches. Thank yeah, this you. was great fun. Um, Glad to be yeah. here. And um, thank you. Okay, wish well to you so both. Fun. You thank all. you very much. Okay, take care. And that's a wrap. Next time we'll be welcoming our next featured lecturer of the season, Susan Daly Swearingen, who's a lecturer on the history of the Confederate flag. In global perspective, was just 
astonishing. You won't want to miss that one. We will catch you then.